in a world full of straight people. Aren't you glad there's WOW Presents Plus, the number one place in the world to see Drag Race? And so much more. Subscribe to WOW Presents Plus. Still only $4.99. Subscribe today as streamed on TV. Start your engines and join me in the new mobile game, RuPaul's Drag Race Superstar. May the best superstar win. Available now. Well, you know, Matt, at some point, we're going to be able to watch and talk about movies with a, a clean conscience again. <laughs> so I know. It has been I a bumpy road. It has certainly been a bumpy few months, road. I, we've done our best. We have done our best. Um, but you know what? I think today all bets are off. Um, That's right. And that is because we have the author of what? Okay, I've forgotten the name of the thing. Well, you know what? He's going to have to tell us. Kyle Turner, The Queer Film Guide. Yes, the book is called The Queer Film Guide, 100 uh, Movies That Tell Great LGBTQIA Plus Stories. Kyle Turner, Thank you, welcome. Kyle. Thank you for, for doing our jobs for us. It's a 7.30 a.m. recording today, folks. You know, we're all doing our best. We're shaking it off. We're waiting for the, the coffee to kick in. Uh, Kyle Turner, uh, where are you? Uh, I am in Brooklyn, New York. And thank you so much for, for having me and for being up so early to, to have me on. Oh, listen, it's our pleasure. It's oh, our pleasure. Yeah. Big fan of Party of Wine. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Now, this is a this is a room that is full of, let's say, DVDs, VHS, perhaps. There's, uh, yes, it there seems are a couple of uh, It seems that there is a good deal of research going on. So uh, so what what is it that you're uh, watching and uh, and binging and obsessed with at the moment? It's October, so I've been going through some scary movies lately. Huh? Last night, um, I watched a film called Swallowed by um, Carter Smith, I believe. And it's one of the most effective horror movies I've seen in a really long time. It's about um, these two friends who get pulled into a drug run, and it goes horribly wrong. And it's a really interesting film because of the way that it slithers between like what you're supposed to find horrifying. It's a very queer film. And it vacillates between finding sort of like the bodily aspects of queer sex, you know, kind of squeamish and squirmish, because I think for everyone who participates in queer sex, especially penetrative sex, even if you get over the hump of finding certain things, um, you know, squicky, that there, there are still moments when something goes wrong, accidents happen, people experience pain, but also there's a level in which like a, that pain can sort of be transformed into pleasure. And I think building that into the way that spectatorship functions within film and especially horror films is really interesting. What are you watching that is both like really uncomfortable and scary and discomforting in some way, but also oddly pleasurable? You're watching someone, their, their moans of pain can sometimes also be transformed into moans of pleasure, depending on the context. Mm. It's, the TLDR is that this is basically a horror movie about fisting. 
Wow. wow. Okay. Great. Oh, God. That this woke is, you up. Uh, such yeah. a good 7.30 a.m. topic. Well, the coffee just started working. It really <laughs> did. Kyle, what are the quintessential queer horror films since we're on the topic? Quintessential queer horror films. If you go all the way back to The Bride of Frankenstein, directed by James Whale, he was the glass closet gay person. Bride of Frankenstein is frequently read as a kind of gay or queer allegory, especially given the way that both the creature and the creature's wife are constructed sort of out of wholesale and are um, sort of put together like two gay people at a wedding just because they're gay. Mm. But they uh, experience this like abject revulsion towards one another, but they find sort of a solace in the fact that they were made for someone else's pleasure in a way. There's that, um, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's wow. Revenge, I believe. Sure. Very much like, yeah, proto-AIDS allegory. The Fly, David Cronenberg, which is in the book. Jennifer's Body and Seed of Chucky are also both in the book. I'm a big fan of cruising the William Friedkin film with Al Pacino about a cop who goes undercover in New York's BDSM leather scene to investigate a series of murders. Very controversial for its time when it was released in 1980, but I've always been like really, uh, in the last few years, I've been really interested in the way that it sort of plays with the iconography of surveillance and policing. And I think a really good companion piece to that film is a movie called Knife Plus Heart, which is a French film from 2018, I believe, by Jan Gonzalez. And it's about a porn producer in Paris in the 1970s whose cast is getting killed off one by one as she's making a new movie. Hmm. Also very much about like spectatorship and the spectacle of queer sex and death and whatnot. Interesting. You know, I just wrote something about uh, Can't Stop the Music. And one of my Uh favorite things that I read about it was that it was being filmed on the streets of Greenwich Village at the exact same time as Cruising. And the citizens of, uh, the the queer citizens of New York City were not happy with Cruising and they would often disrupt takes and whatnot. But about half the time they got it wrong and showed up at the set of Can't (laughs) Stop the Music. And poor Nancy Walker, all four foot nine of her, had to go out and regulate and say like, no, this is the good gay movie. (laughs) <laughs> and send them home. <laughs> Although it, in its way, is is a horrifying film. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, what's also funny about that sort of production note is, as the activists were trying to disrupt the filming of Cruising, what ended up happening was in the final film, when you hear like the voice of the killer, it's ADR, it's additional dialogue recording. Um, but it really lends to the fact that like there's this disembodied quality to the killer where you're not really sure who it is or where they're coming from. And the fact that there is a distance between like the voice that you're hearing and like the actor um, really lends, it really adds like a very eerie quality to the film. Kyle, what have you seen this year that you love? What have I seen this year that I really loved? I have been going to uh, New York Film Festival and attending press screenings lately. So I really loved May, December, the new Todd Haynes movie. Oh, God, I can't uh, wait. So, so good. I, have you seen that meme of like the sicko outside the window that's like, yes, haha, yes. Uh-huh. Um, I have not, but. Yeah, the Onion uh, uh, editorial cartoon. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, that was me the entire time of the film it's uh with julianne moore and natalie portman and natalie portman is playing an actress who goes to visit um the home of this woman who 20 30 years ago um was in the tabloids because she hadn't at 36 had an affair slash raped a 13 year old very uncomfortable subject 
uh, matter. But the way that it's handled is like truly astonishing. Um, I was especially like uh, impressed to hear that the, uh, the film was shot over the course of 23 days. It feels like so controlled and so perfected in a way that it was impressed even for Todd Haynes, who's my favorite living filmmaker. I think it's his best film since Safe, honestly. And there's Charles Melton who's really great in it. He's like the heart of the movie. And I love that it's that it's mean and that it's icky uh, and that it really is pushing all these pressure points of like what is acceptable as far as a kind of voyeuristic quality of watching, not only watching movies, but like being interested in true crime, being interested in like other people's lives. And it's like very much like a queer persona swap film of these two women who are, whose identities like very slowly merge or like melt into one another as they are mimicking each other's gestures, especially since Natalie Forman is playing an actress who's studying this other woman. Um, it's, uh, it's everything I've ever wanted in a movie. So really love that. There's an Argentinian film in the festival called La Practica by Martin Ratman, which I really enjoyed. And sort of like Job as yoga instructor whose life is falling apart. Enjoyed that. Uh, the um, Iraqis, Greg Iraqis' um, Teen Apocalypse trilogy is being re released into theaters. And uh, with, uh, so that's totally fucked up, Doom Generation and Nowhere. Um, and that's been a pleasure to watch on the screen. Did so you grow up watching those on, uh, on VHS? I didn't come to Gregoraki until I was in high school and they were available from Netflix DVD. Yeah, there you go. I don't think you should, uh, I, I don't think you should watch Gregoraki before high school, quite frankly. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I feel like high school is about the youngest you should go, right? I agreed, yeah. You should watch them when you feel ready to watch them, I, in I my opinion. And especially, I, I mean, since it's called the Teen Apocalypse Trilogy, I think it's probably they're they're most suited to people who are like 16 17 18 especially mm -hmm. since they are distillations of all that teen angst and frustration and rebelliousness but yeah i mean i was watching um the exorcist when i was 12 and i saw the dreamers the bertolucci film with uh eva green and michael pitt and louis garrell when i was like 13 i'm not saying that i wholly recommend that your children watch um, the dreamers when they're 13 but like whatever you sort of set the line for yourself as to how you can engage with pop culture and art if you're um, hopefully in an environment that encourages you to either question or question the material or, or be challenged by it I'm for it I'm seeing the new exorcist tonight by the way and I'm scared I'm scared because it hopefully will be scary, but I'm also scared because the reviews haven't been oh, yeah. great. Yeah, I have not seen it yet. Not a big David Bernard Green person. I did not like most of his Halloween. You, oh, you didn't. I'm alone in that. What did you grow up obsessed with pop culture wise? And what do you consider sort of your personal queer gateway film? Mm -hmm. I grew up obsessed. I went through like different phases of like having foundations of my cinephilia as it were um my the first movie that i remember watching and really loving was bringing up baby from 1938 with Catherine Hepburn and carrie grant um and i that's sort of the movie the way I, I like i have the most i have the earliest memory of pleasure basically of happiness of watching something um and i never looked back and then the first movie that i saw in movie theaters was star wars the phantom menace and so i'm somewhat an apologist for the prequel trilogy. And then I went through like a really intense horror phase when I was 11, 12 and watched all these slasher movies and universal monster movies. I loved 
Dracula and Creature from the Black Lagoon, but I also really like the Scream movies, which um, it's sort of interesting to be an adult and like watch Scream be like the one of the most popular sl- slasher franchises so much so that it's sort of um, outlived the slasher movies that it was parodying and yeah. critiquing. Um, but that was very big for me. Um, I also was really into um, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies uh, and the Child's Play movies. But um, oh, and the other pop culture obsession that I had as a child was Cole Porter. Very heterosexual of me as a child to be really into Delovely. <laughs> How do you feel about the new screen films, by the way? Terrible. Horrible. I think they oh. should stop making them. Um, it's like it has less to do with like how good the actors are or whatnot, but like the the very premise on which Scream exists is the idea that like there are the the these real people are finding themselves having to negotiate the tropes of the and cliches of a horror movie and basically navigate like a different world. And also that they have to be like constantly outsmarting the audience in their ability to communicate like what the the trend that particular trend of horror movies is supposed to be reflective of or emblematic of within the culture and like the original screen movie movies are very much like what happened to the slasher movies of the 80s and how they ended up being this like the bizarre funhouse mirror of like the culture of violence that existed at the time because it's like loosely based on a a series of high profile murders that got a lot of tv coverage but like what is i don't think they found like a good way to communicate like what the current trend of horror movies is now and why that matters. And so it's sort of like gotten into this like Ouroborosian, Ouroborosian snake eating its tail thing of like, oh, legacy sequels and like, what's the... Requels. Requels. It's just like, I've never in my life heard anyone use the term requel. And while I don't disagree that like the way in which nostalgia has become like the primary form of intellectual property i think that's like very valuable especially when it when the reboots of scream itself are evidence of that i don't think by trying to like twist its own mythology into itself it does a good way of figuring out how to like articulate why it matters to an audience that like the movies are basically critiquing or like parodying the idea that all we're eating all we're like feasting on are like you know things from our childhood things that are not necessarily allowing us to grow in our media consumption and have a like a more sophisticated understanding of like the the media landscape more broadly oh and to answer your earlier question foundational queer text my mother showed me um to one crew thank you everything doing anymore when i was like seven or eight wow wow what a good mom that's good uh, yeah music. yeah just to to shift topics briefly you wrote a piece for gq that i believe was entitled why does stand-up comedy and movies always suck? And it mm-hmm. was in, in context of the Joker movie that did yeah. just come out. We've had kind of, we've circled a similar conversation here, kind of more in the context of uh, Che Diaz and, and just uh-huh. like that. But um, why does uh, stand-up in movies and let's say TV always suck? I would love to write a, a sequel to this article specifically about Che Diaz, actually. But I spoke to a bunch of, comedians for the piece and it was really i have i'm a little bit of a comedy nerd and i love the the art of it the skill the um the writing part of it as well and speaking to comedians it's really 
cool to listen to them talk their talk about their craft, talk shop and whatnot. Um, and the answers that they had for me primarily were rooted in the idea that like stand up comes from from the self, comes from a very very personal place. Even if you're creating a character, even if you're creating something entirely fictional, you know that character much better and to write five minutes of jokes or one one joke because it's intimately yours than you can writing for a fictional character that doesn't exist like or for for a movie like it is very hard to come out with like the complete facets or the complete multi-dimensionality of like a a character for a script that like has to exist sort of outside of the context of like that stand-up person's persona than it is to write like five minutes for yourself or five minutes for, for a fictional character. And I thought that was really, really fascinating. And I also spoke to John Early and one of the things that he said was that, especially in movies and TV, stand-up is used to move the plot forward. And so there isn't necessarily as much care taken to making sure that the jokes themselves are good. And the jokes themselves like make a cohesive set, especially a set from like a whole person. Um, and that whole, per- when you're watching good stand-up, even if it's, quote-unquote effortless you can tell that there was work put into it and it's very hard to convey that a fictional character is putting work into their stand-up material um there are very very few exceptions um one of them was movie with tom hanks and sally field i believe punchline punchline yeah that one's really fun there was a movie that jamie luftis served as a consultant on which was pretty good um and that was because she was working with the director and with the with the lead actor Mary Elizabeth Winstead to blend Mary Elizabeth Winstead's like actual persona and Jamie Loftus's like joke writing skills to make a convincing set. And so I think it really comes down to the fact that a lot of these writers don't necessarily know how to channel their efforts and energy into making um, a set of jokes feel like it's coming from a flesh and blood person. So if you were to write this sequel about Che Diaz, can you give us just a top line, you know, just an overall kind of thesis statement? So I will I will fully admit, first off, I've not watched and just like that at all yet. I've only seen like bits and pieces of Che Diaz on the Internet. But my headline would be like, what does TV want out of queer comedy? And mm. I do not have the answer for that at the moment, but I'm. I think a lot of the criticism about Che Diaz has not only come from the fact that like that character is not telling jokes, but that character's um, air quotes jokes are coming from this issue or this idea of identity. And like how much of identity is supposed to form someone's stand-up material, especially if that person's like one, not real, and two, we're entering a new, I think, period of how queer people in in comedy especially are being received by a general public and also television executives. I did a piece for New York Magazine slash Vulture about the idea of queer hack um, yeah. and the fact that it means something different to every person that I interviewed. Hack can broadly be described as like not not funny, but like very easy jokes, things that are like very very predictable, things that are like first thought jokes and aren't necessarily surprising. You're I'm in therapy and that's the joke, or I'm whatever sexual position and that's the joke and it was uh interesting speaking with all these different comedians as to like how they define it and then how they avoid it and i think with regards to che diaz i think what's interesting is that there aren't really jokes there like and it's 
I'm not quite clear as to whether that is the point, but I'm very curious, like, why for that material to sort of generate laughs within the context of the show or within the universe of the show, why it sort of stops at, like, the setup? Like, what does that mean for the way in which, like, queer characters or, or queer comedy characters need to be set up in a particular, like, straight universe? Who are the queer comics that you uh, are liking now? Oh, um, I I love Dylan Adler. Dylan Adler is my biological son. He and I are, are very close, but I think he's one of the sharpest and most energetic comedians I've ever seen. I, like, after having become friends with him, I've seen him do his set, like, dozens of times to the point that I've, like, almost lip sync to it. But mm. it's something new every time when you watch it on stage. He is an explosive star. It's so exciting to watch him on stage or um, even on video or on TikTok. He's just like, he's just like a burst of energy, which is really exciting. I love him. I love Zach Zimmerman, George Severus, Ayo Adabiri. Who else do I love? I really enjoy Dash Turner, who's a writer. What's that Peacock show that um, is with, it, it takes place in a small town and it has to do with like the, um, bringing down of a statue or a monument of a like a, a colonist. I'm blanking on the name. Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm peacock. only going to Peacock for Housewives content. I'm sorry. Ah, uh, yes. I mean, I I do love uh, a little bit of Housewives myself. But uh, who else do I love? Um, Jess Tom, I think is really fantastic. I think the these are all. Oh, Jay Jordan is such a sharp joke writer, and he has so much fun with wordplay. Um, I like Jess Tom is sort of like uh, they've assumed sort of a, a curmudgeonly elder queer persona, which I really love. I think we're we really are in a new vanguard of queer comedy, which is really exciting. Yeah. And you ha- um haven't had the chance. I definitely recommend Jesse David Fox's book, Comedy Book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic That Makes It Work. Say that five times fast. Um, mm. It's a really, really interesting um, examination of comedy the last 30, 40 years. And there's a whole section about like queer comics emerging, especially from like New York, LA scenes and becoming popular. Julio Torres and Jolton Booster are also big faves of mine. What queer comics don't you like? I'm just kidding. I could go there. <laughs> uh, we all could. I don't think we mentioned, unless I blacked out, Dave, the, the Andrew Scott film that you got oh. to see early. Oh, All yeah. the Strangers? All yeah. the Strangers. I'm curious, what did you think of it? I cried myself sore. Uh, I loved it. Uh-huh. Loved it, loved it. I'm getting the sense you did not. No, no, no. I'm I'm a big Andrew High fan. I've been a um, huge fan of his since Weekend. And um, I think he's one of the best working directors about class t- um, today. I think uh-huh. all of his films very slyly indicate like um, what it means for gay men, especially to sort of uh, have this like class mobility sometimes upward, sometimes downward. His first feature film is a hybrid documentary fiction film called Greek Pete, which is about a sex worker who's gradually becoming more and more famous and trying to negotiate those waters. Weekend is wonderful. 45 Years is amazing with Charlotte Rampling. Um, There's a really great needle drop in that film. All the Strangers, I think, is really interesting. I'm not sure if I love it. I think it is very good. And as a person of, like, dead dad experience, it was, like, definitely hitting some points. And I'm very compelled by the idea of a director trying to grapple with this idea of like a sort of post-liberal or post-marriage equality loneliness of like 
gay sadness that still exists after ostensibly like a lot of if not all of uh, some basic rights have been granted that like we we have sort of assimilated enough into society to like sort of live a basic happy life but then there's something still missing something still very very sad something still empty and to have someone try to articulate that cinematically and aesthetically is really interesting and i've also like never seen a k-hole on film yeah Mm, um, yeah. which is cool. There are certain things that I don't know if completely work. I wish we got a little bit more of the Paul Mescal character, but I think it's very good. I think it's really beautifully shot. Lots of dissolves in this film, which is kind of unusual for him, for, for Entreheim, but I really enjoyed it. I cried several times. And I'm really, I, I, I think it's a really um, interesting enterprise uh, as far as like the way also that queer people do with memory. Before we let you go, I mean, I, since you mentioned it, I have to ask your uh, overall feelings on the, the current Housewives universe. Um, I, I'm i a little behind on my Housewives. I only recently started the New York reboot, which I'm enjoying so mm-hmm. far. I love Uba. She's a delight. She's great. I know that people don't like Sai, but because Sai always talks about being hungry, I'm really into that because I'm always hungry. I m- Most of my favorite Housewives are the ones who usually get fired because they're, they're boring but i really just like i love having kind of a silly audience surrogate or someone who's like sort of grumpy but is like slightly not detached from the group but like has enough of a, a vantage point to know how ridiculous everything is and also what i love about the new new york is that i do feel that with like beverly hills and salt lake city it was like getting a little bit too into the true crime genre um, and what I like about the Housewives series is that they are, like, really genre fluid. Like, at any moment, a good Housewives show or a good Housewives, like, season could be, like, comedy and melodrama and horror and <laughs> noir and slapstick. And it, like, really has a, a versatility about, like, where it's getting its emotional beats and how it's trying to get the audience to to these situations and these characters but when you like isolate it into being one genre it becomes a little bit staged for my taste and what i like about um new york is that it's gone back to the idea like these trivial little arguments and these like minor in like social infractions get blown up because like all the little thoughts that you're having in your head about your friends or about your acquaintances then get aired out in public and so are made these like molehills are made into mountains but like fabulous mountains and fabulous sure. molehills so i'm i am enjoying new new york uh has anyone seen milf manor no no milf manor is deranged and i do think like i do like reality tv i'm not an alarmist about it usually but i think milf manor might be a sign of the downfall of society it is all these older women who are put in a house to date younger men the younger men are all of the women's sons. And so they are dating each other. Pretty good twist. Yeah. Good yeah. Twist. It's it's really uncomfortable. And I felt like every time I watched an episode, I watched with a friend and we would like get high and eat fast food. I felt like I was having multiple brain aneurysms per episode. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And whether that is appealing, an appealing like venture for any of you, who am I to judge? I mean, it's, you know, it, these are these are difficult times when we do what we can. Now, I, and this is something that I really have not uh, talked to you, Matt, about in any uh, real depth, but I might have found my Gateway Housewives franchise, which is 
Salt Lake City. Oh, um, yeah. Just on, on several people's recommendations, I watched uh, maybe three episodes ago, and it truly was just dazzling. And, the current and even, season. The current season, yeah. yeah. And uh, and Ben, who usually, you know, turns up his nose at such things, was was at my side and was just like, oh, my God, this is wild. And so oh, we've, yeah. we've, we've watched a few in a row. We tied a few in a row. And there may not Mary be Cosby yeah. is Mary Cosby one of the is. great, great oh, entertainers of our time. She's back, she's back and she's better than ever. Okay. I okay. We'll take know, your word for that. I did a um, sort of a voyage into Salt Lake with our friends, Casey and Danielle, that, you know, they had an actual physical session. Voyage. An actual yeah. physical voyage and did a whole, we, we spent on a day the with Salt Heather Lake Gay. itself. We, we went to, I don't know the restaurants they go to. We did the whole thing. We also went to Mary's church, did not go inside just literally to film us kind of walking past the church. And I felt like haunted by the experience. There was a dark energy vortex surrounding that place. You know, I, I I mean, listen, she's a dangerous person, but she's so goddamn funny. I hope that they keep her around as long as it is safe to do so. I appreciate Matt coming in with the hot takes today. Really? <laughs> Normally I get in trouble for being the hot take person, but I appreciate it. Not I appreciate today, it. Kyle. Not today. <laughs> yeah, no, she's she's a she is a real trip. I haven't picked up since like the season before. Okay. Um, and I need to need to get back on my Salt Lake City. I've heard mixed things about this season, but I'm curious. If I may make a recommendation to you, Dave, if yes. you plan on venturing into other housewives, Potomac is really good. Potomac, I think, yes, is the best show of the series. And I, there's a fairly low barrier to entry. I think you can sort of skip the first two seasons and it really gets good around season three. But the housewife show that takes itself the least seriously and has the most fun with itself, all of the women are really funny and witty and like the right kind of self-aware for that kind of show where like, they're aware of the the labor context in which they're all together. They're like, we're here to be paid to be friends, but mm. we know how to like work within those parameters and have a good time. And it also like aesthetically speaking, has the most fun with itself and is willing to like go really goofy with some of the edits and with some of the like transitions and graphics on the screen. So that's, I think really, really good. Whenever I'm showing someone who's like housewife skeptical or housewives ambivalent, there's one episode from season four called Showdown at the Hoedown, which I like to show their friends, especially if they're like coming from the film world and are not really as into reality TV. I think that one's a really good example of how like rich housewives can be as a cultural artifact and as a text because you have like all these different layers happening at the same time. Uh, and it's a lot of fun to watch. Hey. I'm in. And it's it's a lot of fun to hear you speak, uh, you know, equally eloquently about the highbrow and the lowbrow. Not that I consider housewives lowbrow, <laughs> but I know some of our listeners do. Thank you. I don't believe in brows except for middle middle brows. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, no, wait. Good. No, I'm, unibrows. I'm no, no, unibrows. unibrows. Sorry, unibrows. I messed up that. No, no, no. It's okay. I believe we in unibrows. I believe in unibrows because I believe in me. Kyle Turner, what is your... Uh, what is your romantical situation this time uh my romantical situation is that i'm i had my heart broken in june and i'm displacing all of that energy into my work right yeah i mean not um, great for heartbreak but great for us because great, we get to read yeah, it yeah yeah um i'm single and i'm you know if something happens along the way i'm open to it i'm currently like 
in my ideal situation, it would be for like someone consistent to like who has the stamina to watch two movies in a row and then have sex and then leave. Wow. Okay. Wow. The two movies first. Interesting. Yeah. I would have thought it was the other way around. You know, lots of people think that, but they're wrong. Oh, okay. I, I did. I had a. I had a friend um, come over to watch Scream Four a while back because they didn't like the Scream Six. Get Six. We're on Six. Mm-hmm. They didn't like Scream Six, and I was like, "Oh, let's watch Scream Four because I think Scream Four does what Scream Six is trying to do, but better." Mm-hmm. Um, especially in terms of its attempt to like prophesize about like media culture. But they weren't into it, and we started making out. And then they weren't necessarily into that either. It's like, okay, that's fine. Then there was like awkward silence. And it's like, I'm fine. If it's, I totally get if you're like not into it, do you still want to watch the movie? And they're like, oh, I didn't know that you still want to watch the movie. I was like, I always want to watch the movie. I'm always down to watch a movie. (laughs) They were like, I'm not into this movie. And so we switched to Saw 3. Oh my God. Which is like quite the leap, quite the jump in tone. And they got like very close to me and I got to put my arm around them. And after Saw 3, we didn't make out, but we did watch Looney Tunes and then we made out. We needed a palate cleanser. Sure, yeah. Honestly, when you said Saw 3, that itself was a jump scare. (laughs) Truly, Truly, that's the one area of horror I just can't go into. Yeah, I can't either. Understandably so. I never thought I would be the kind of person who who would be able to watch 3 and giggle through the whole thing. But I throughout like I, I think it was definitely like the the mix of having a a friend that I was attracted to who was not privy to like what was going to happen in the movie and who wasn't super familiar and me knowing everything that was coming because I'd seen I've seen Saw three like four or five times and which I recognize might speak ill of me or like uh, give a really good picture of the mental illness that we're dealing with this morning but <laughs> it was uh, it was a lot of fun and. Um, it was a good makeout session. Um, Why? What is it about that? Maybe it's only that movie in the franchise, but the Saw movies that speaks to you. Oh, I do think that I, it, for the record, I don't return to the Saw movies super frequently compared to like even Scream or like Halloween or something. But I am fascinated with like Saw as a product of like a post 9 11 culture. Like, the Saw movies and all the torture porn stuff that was coming out in the like early mid 2000s were coming or were being released like after the Abu Ghraib expose and pictures were were being shown all over the news media. And so audiences, regardless if they were watching these movies specifically, had already been exposed to pictures of extreme and graphic violence. It opened up a whole new world of like, how we think about violence in the media because these were like unconscionable irredeemable act that people then had to be like exposed to we had to we had like a then a much more intimate understanding like what happens to the flesh what happens to the body when people violate it horror is so much it's it's so useful way to purge all those anxieties within the culture and within like politics and to make them a little bit less scary or a little bit more uh, or at least give us access to like compartmentalizing them. And so those torture porn movies like Saw and whatnot are very much ways in which to artistically or culturally sort of purge those fears of like, what is the limit that the body and the flesh can handle? 
how far can it be pushed to like almost an absurd degree and i understand that like it's not for all tastes and i do think that watching it was like when the new song movies come out i there are lots of friends and acquaintances who try to like binge watch them all before seeing the new one and like that is an act of self-harm yeah (laughs) i could not do that that is like that's uh, when the Chris Rock one came out a few years ago, Spiral. I did like rewatch a bunch of them in succession. I was like, this is unpleasant. Like one or two I can handle over the course of a week, but like having to watch multiple of them in a very short span of time. And I was doing it for work because I was writing about it. But like, this is not fun anymore. It's like just really, really brutal and unpleasant. But I do think that there is a place for like pop culture that can be unpleasant as a way to like uh, better understand and negotiate those feelings about like really horrific things. Okay. I really feel... contextualized. Yeah. I honestly feel, um, I feel better about the world after having <laughs> spoken to you. It's uh, even the Saw movies, especially even the Saw movies, even the Saw movies, which, you know, my only real interaction with them is the posters. And the mm-hmm. thing that kills me is that it's like, so I'm assuming that it's this, you know, devious, you know, criminal mastermind and, you know, and each new trick is, you know, more, more horrifying than the last, but like, but also his shit is filthy. You know, yeah, like there's yeah. the thing with like the, the people are getting their eyeballs sucked mm-hmm. out through tubes and it's like, also, he doesn't clean his stuff. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, all... it's like, <laughs> just clean your shit. It's dirty and grimy and and also Jigsaw's a fascist. Like also what's interesting about these movies to me is that like the moral code of the villain is like if you don't value your life the way that I think you should value your life, you do not deserve to live, which is fascism. Totally fascism. A certain uniformity of moral code. Absolutely. Also, what's sort of compelling about like the fact that they keep making them is that like since the movies are so rooted in a post 9-11 context, it's sort of like weird to watch them like try to reinvigorate them when like the trend in horror movies and in horror more generally has changed pretty dramatically since 9-11. Like you have the ghost movies and stuff that were like um like it follows and the conjuring that were coming out sort of like during the Obama years and then during the Trump uh, administration, you have like elevated horror, which is like almost trying to make like traditional and classic horror cliches quote-unquote great again by like putting this like aesthetic polish on the witch or midsummer or hereditary these are like really classic basically ghost stories or possession stories that are now given like the a24 polish but um and now with like the new one coming out it's just like uh it's it's interesting to see how it tries to situate itself within like this broader landscape of of horror movies and now we're getting to a period where like everyone's doing the like trauma as horror metaphor thing which is like yeah. not original or interesting hopefully what's inter- what's um exciting about horror as an artistic or creative exercise is that more than one thing can be a metaphor more than one thing can, yes. can be able to access the things that we're scared of or or hurt by etc cetera, etc cetera. and the fact that like we keep returning to this one one route is like a little bit boring but that saw is a counterpoint to that is kind of interesting because there's like that the idea of like trauma being the big bad ghost does not fit within this universe what fits within this universe is like a crazy or like deeply mentally ill person who thinks that they know better than you um how to live your life and that's terrifying so well said i can't i if I hear, you know, 
one more time that what it's really about is grief. Uh huh. I don't what, what what's not about grief yeah. Yeah. anymore, yeah. you know. And I got plenty of it, you know. Uh huh. I get that that is something to connect to, but there are other themes. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. My well, goodness, Kyle. Kyle Turner. Is- the book is the Queer Film Guide. This conversation is just a, a little taste of, of the brilliance that you will get in that book. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Please come back. Yeah, I would love to. What are you putting on tonight? What's the movie for uh, for tonight? Oh, I'm actually seeing Merrily We Roll Along tonight. <gasps> oh. oh, that's about grief. It is about grief. It is about <laughs> grief and aging mm-hmm. and the, the um, way that your dreams die. But it's been oh a dream God. to be here. So I'm Yay! very, very thrilled to be here. Um, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Kyle. Homophilia is a World of Wonder podcast produced and engineered by Renee Colvert. Our theme song is by Ben Wise. We want to thank Michael Pressman and everybody at World of Wonder. Please follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, at HomophiliaPod. And if you would, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We sure would appreciate it.